So have you ever had any trouble with your computer? <laughs> trouble with your computer? Dan Rosenditch shows a repairman talking to a customer after repairing his computer. And the repairman says this to the customer, I advise not to eat jelly donuts while you're working at your keyboard anymore. Who knew <laughs> that sweet jelly falling into the accessory hardware of a computer would mess anything up? Who knew? Who knew? Maybe you're the person in your family or at work or among your friends that is always asked to fix the computer, right? You're, you're the guy or the gal that's called when something's wrong with the computer. I'm, I'm that guy. If that's you, just thought I'd give you a fun list that I came across of excuses that you can start using when you are helping people with their computer. They're, they're not real excuses. They're fake excuses, but they'll be fun to use. Things like this. Yeah, I think your flux capacitor is broken. You're, you're going to have to get that fixed. Or the Ethernet tubes are leaking. Or there was a glitch in the matrix. Or you might need to relieve some pressure in the Ethernet hose. If you don't know anything about computers, these are only funny to like five of us, okay? And then the last one, I think you might have some cable mites. I think you might have cable mites. Yeah, there, there's no such thing, but that's fun. Any, anyone, just use that, you know. Next time, my phone's not working. I bet you got cable mites. Just see where it goes. Possibly the most annoying thing in the world is when your computer is not working and you ask that person to come over and help you with the computer and suddenly what happens? The computer starts working again, right? Yeah, that's, that's really annoying. Now that never happens with me and computers, but it has always happened with me and my dad and cars. Always, always. I mean, for weeks, my car can sound like there's a band of chipmunks having an 80s hairband reunion inside of my engine. And then my dad will go and all that craziness that I've heard for three weeks, my dad will crank it up and it'll, it'll purr like a kitten, you know, like, like nothing has ever happened, you know. Ever been there where, where you ask somebody to come help and whatever was broken suddenly works again? You know, sometimes our computers don't work. Sometimes our cars don't work. And sometimes life doesn't work, right? Sometimes things feel so out of whack in our life, we just feel like we're about to lose our minds, and sometimes things are so difficult in our lives that we really do just start to completely lose heart. What does it mean to lose heart? Well, it means that all of a sudden you lose courage. You become so deeply discouraged that you lose courage and you lose confidence. You, you lose a sense of purpose. And you don't just lose something, you gain something. You gain an attitude of pessimism. You gain a demoralized attitude. You gain a defeated attitude. That's what losing heart will do. So what can you do? What can you do when you lose heart? Well, the Apostle Paul, he was saved when he was about 30 years old. God saved him, he began to follow Jesus, and for the next 30 years of his life, he was beaten, he was tortured, he was imprisoned, he was shipwrecked, he was left for dead over and over and over again. For 30 years, he experienced pain, he experienced unimaginable stress, all because he loved and proclaimed 
and follow Jesus. Paul's life seemed to never be working. There was never anything that was ever going right. The Apostle Paul should have been the most pessimistic person, the most demoralized person, the most defeated person that any of us have ever heard about. But he wasn't. Paul had reason after reason after reason to lose heart. He should have woke up every single morning and immediately lost heart just because of his life. But he didn't. Why? Well, let's see if we can find out. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. Paul writes, For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul is basically repeating the sentence that he just used. And, and why do we repeat things? When I was in seminary, uh, I used to go to this one Mexican restaurant downtown in, in Wake Forest, and there's a super cool waiter there that I kind of always tried to, to get his table. And, and when he would bring the food over, he would set it down. He'd say, amigo, hot plate, hot plate, hot plate. Every single time. Three times he said hot plate. Now, now why would he do that? Well, he didn't want me to burn myself. You know, we, we warn people of things. We repeat things because we want them to know, hey, this is important. This is a warning. You really need to pay attention to that. Parents, why do we repeat things to our kids? Well, we repeat things to our kids because we're not really sure if their hearing is working through the buds of ear in the night of fort. You know, we just, we just don't know if they're actually really hearing anything that we're saying. We repeat things because we're not sure if people heard us the first time. But Jesus, he actually strategically repeated something over and over again, and, and he repeated just like this one word, and that word is truly. Over and over again in, in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus saying truly, truly. Here's, here's just one of those places, John chapter 6, verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. The word for truly in the original language has this idea of, of firsthand knowledge. So Jesus isn't just tossing out some spiritual chicken soup for your soul, okay? He is saying from firsthand knowledge, he is saying what I'm about to say to you is coming from heaven, like it's coming from me through heaven to you, so you really need to listen. This is important. And there he says what? He who believes has eternal life. He who believes and keeps believing has eternal life. That's, that's important. So Paul doesn't seem to be repeating something as a warning. He doesn't seem to be repeating something because they weren't paying attention the first time. It seems that the idea here is he's repeating something because it's really important. It's something that, that they need to listen to. And what is he repeating? Well, he's repeating that every single day of his life, he faces death for the gospel. Every single day of his life, he wakes up with the stress of knowing that that might be the day that he's killed for his faith. Dying for his faith was a daily reality for Paul. And not just for Paul, but really for most of the people that were part of the early church. Stephen Neal once wrote this, every Christian 
knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. Can you imagine? Hey, we'd, we'd love you to come join our church. By the way, you might have to die if you ever tell anybody you go to our church. And yet that was the pattern of life. But again, why is Paul repeating that? Why is Paul repeating that he might, in testifying to his faith, lose his life? Well, the reason he was doing it is because he was very passionately believing that it was worth it. He believed that everything about Jesus made it worth it. That every morning when he woke up facing death, it was worth it. Why? Well, Paul said it was worth it because Jesus was going to be manifested. What does that mean? Well, it means that Paul, when he got up every day, he, he knew that he was risking his life to preach and teach and share the gospel. But he also knew that in, in doing that, that people were going to hear about Jesus and some of those people might get saved. And so that became worth all of it. And Paul would go to bed at night and say, boy, this was rough. I almost, almost was killed today for the gospel. But you know what? If I can do that again tomorrow and somebody can be saved, then I'll do it all over again in the morning. Can't wait. He had every reason to lose heart because he faced death all day long, every day. It, it never went away, but he didn't lose heart. And if he did lose heart, it, it seemed that he quickly grabbed the gospel paddles and, and shocked his heart back out of losing heart. It seemed that Paul found a lot of joy in what it means to be saved. It seems that he couldn't get over the simple reality that, that Jesus, the Son of God, the very God of very God, as Spurgeon said, that, that Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Now, how much did Jesus love Paul? This is what he said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Paul says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul couldn't shake that, that Jesus loved him and died for him. And Paul couldn't shake that because Jesus loved him, because Jesus died for him, he should probably talk about that. He couldn't shake that he needed to tell everybody he could that Jesus saves. And I am so glad that Paul got up every morning and faced death for his faith to tell people about Jesus. Why am I so glad? Listen to what he writes next in verse 12. So death works in us, but life in you. Paul was being beaten. He was being tortured. He was being in prison. He was facing death all day, every day. Because even though he had not met me, he was courageously convinced that I needed to hear the gospel. Please don't ever underestimate that this brown-skinned, Middle Eastern, death-defying man is the only reason you're a Christian. See, he did not want the gospel to stay where it was because it was too great and it was too grand and it was too glorious. It had to get out. What about us? What are we facing so that other people can hear the gospel? Paul faced death 
so that people like me and you could be saved? What, what are we facing so that other people could be saved? Timothy Brubaker is a Christian educator and leadership trainer in Rwanda. He writes about a, a place in southwest Rwanda that since 1942, a, a lot of missionaries go to at least annually just for a, a time of retreat and renewal. And in that area in the southwest, there is a cliff. And that cliff overlooks this lake. And sometime years ago, some previous missionaries took a, a very long slab of wood and they stuck it on the edge of that cliff. And they call it the plank and the plank sits out about 30 feet above the lake. And Brubaker said that, that many times he has gone and, and walked out to the plank, and his younger children behind him are cheering him and jeering him along to, to try it out, to jump off. But as of a couple of years ago, he still had not jumped off. But he did share how his friend Jeff handles the plank. That's what he writes. Jeff steps onto the plank, walks a few paces, pulls himself up into an overhanging tree, climbs even higher, turns backward, and launches into a backflip as he springs out over the water. It's always that guy, right? Yeah. Brubaker goes on to say this. This is a picture of how I want to live. Not carelessly, but confidently. Springing with confidence into every situation that the Lord brings into my life. You know, we probably all need as Christians a little more of Jeff's confidence in our life when it comes to making sure that we are facing something so that people can be saved, so that people can know that Jesus saves. Paul's saying here, look, I... I know I might be killed today in this town. I know that might happen. But you know what? It's a fair trade. <laughs> if I get killed today, fair trade if I get to make sure that they hear the gospel before I'm killed. That's crazy talk, right? I mean, this is, this is very strange and very weird. And, and why would, would Paul talk like that? Why would Paul feel like that? Well, he talked that way and he felt that way because Jesus loved him and gave himself up for him. That was the only fuel that Paul's life ran on. Paul was pressed. He was stressed. He was perplexed. He was persecuted. He was struck down. But he was never crushed under the weight of any of those things. Why? Because he was saved. He was saved. He was saved and people were being saved. I've been pressed this week. I've been stressed this week. I've been perplexed this week. And I'm thinking some of y'all have too. But if we've truly surrendered to Jesus Christ, we can be pressed and stressed and perplexed. We can be struck down. But the very nature of what it means to be in Christ, the very nature of what it means to be surrendered to Christ means this. We can't be crushed. We, we can't be crushed. Why? Because Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you. Now, you might be thinking, well, that sounds like good theology, but, but you don't know what I'm going through. I mean, that sounds like neat stuff for, for some guy back in, in the Bible times, but I mean, it's 2019. I, I need something for real for now. 
Listen to what Paul says next in verse 13. But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. We also believe, therefore we also speak. Paul says here, the, the same spirit of faith. What does that mean? Well, there's, there's probably a number of applications. I'm just going to use two this morning. And the first is looking back at his letter to the folks at Galatia. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Paul asked them a question, and he, he asked it with what feels like a hint of sarcasm. This is, this is what he asked. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's like what Paul is saying is this. Did the Spirit of God take up residence in your heart because you followed some religious rules and some religious ceremonies? Is that how the Spirit of God got in your heart? Did the Spirit of God take up residence in your heart simply because you, you prayed a sinner's prayer and signed a card at the church and got baptized? Is that, is that how the Spirit of God came into your heart? Or did the Spirit of God come into your life because God pursued you with the gospel and you believe by faith in the gospel and you are trusting in Jesus as your only that's what he's asking. <laughs> In other words, the only way a person is saved is by his grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone. And so, don't, don't miss the math here. If all of us come to Christ in the same exact way, in other words, if, if we all come to faith in Christ by faith in Christ, then that means we all have the exact same faith even though we are not all in the exact same circumstances. Paul's faith and my faith and your faith, it's, it's the same faith because that faith is in Christ. It's in Christ. So, so how does that flesh out? Well, Paul, he was in danger of being killed for his faith. Unless there's something I don't know, most of us don't wake up to that. So, so Paul, he was in danger of being killed for his faith. We're in danger of being ignored by our spouse. Okay, Not really the same thing. Okay, But it's the same faith in Christ that we have to help. I mean, I think through all, all the, the moments of life, you know, Paul, he's, he's in danger of being killed for his faith, and, you know, we're, we're in danger of being grounded by our parents, you know. We're in danger of being exhausted by caring for a sick family member. We're in danger of having that college pass over us. We're, we're in danger of having the company downsize us. We're in danger of being stuck in the fast food place with pickles that we didn't order and you know, having to figure out what in the world we're going to do. See, we, we have different dangers. But here's the thing. We still have the same faith in Christ to help. It's, it's not a different faith. And so Paul's saying, you know, we, got, we have the same faith in Christ. It's the same. It's the same power. And so how is the same powerful faith that Paul had to survive waking up to death every day, death for his faith, how in the world does that have anything to do with us today? Well, Paul's quoting the words of the psalmist here, Psalm 116, 
verse 10. I believed when I said I am greatly afflicted. So Paul's saying we, we believed and we spoke because we were afflicted. Now, now how does that kind of make a connection with our minds? I, I'm going to ask John Newton to kind of help us think through what it means that we believe because we were afflicted. This is what he writes. Through many dangers, through many toils, through many snares, I've already come. I've, I've already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far through all of those dangers, toils, and snares, and it will be grace that will lead me home. See, the, the faith that we're talking about believing in is proven faith. It's, it's not fluffy faith. It's, it's proven faith. It's faith that has experienced the before and after love of God. The before love of God, meaning that before the foundations of the world, God loved us. Before the foundations of the world, God created a plan to create us. Before the foundations of the world, God created a plan to save us. So there's before love. And then there's after love. The, the after love of God means this, that today is the day after yesterday. And yesterday, God saw us through the dangers and the toils and the snares. And this morning, his mercy was brand new. His grace was brand new. His compassion was brand new. And that grace and that mercy and that compassion will lead us home. What kind of home are we talking about? Listen to what Paul writes next. Verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. I'm going to read from uh, Paul's first letter to the folks at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm, I'm going to start with verse 13 and, and read through 19, and then we're going to jump down to 20 in just a moment. But I, I want you to just kind of settle in for a second and, and try to chew on this and, and marinate on these things that Paul's saying. Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I want to try to connect this to the next few weeks. If Easter is not real, then we are ignorant and foolish people. And this building and this campus 
and our tithes and our offerings and our support of missionaries and your church membership is completely and absolutely worthless. And non-Christians have every reason to mock us and ridicule us for believing in and following Jesus. But don't miss that one little word that Paul used over and over again. Just, just those two letters. If. If. Paul says, if the Son of God was crucified and stayed dead, if the tomb that Jesus was buried in was not empty, if the body of Jesus is, is still in a cemetery, if the disciples of Jesus never met the risen Jesus, if the disciples of Jesus never talked to the risen Jesus, if the church was not started because of the risen Jesus. You getting the vibe here of the ifs? So you have to work super hard to ignore the biblical and historical and practical and spiritual truth surrounding the realities that cancel out those ifs. See, Paul didn't want us to stay in the ifs. He didn't want to write a letter about ifs. So he didn't. Listen to verse 14 again, and then we're going to jump to 20. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And your faith is also vain. And then verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is, is risen from the dead. Jesus Christ is alive and he's seated at the right hand of God. The tomb is empty. And Jesus is coming again just as he said. Are you ready? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Are, are things right between you and God? A few hours before he was executed by Roman soldiers, Jesus said this to his friends. John 16, In the world, you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. But be of good cheer. Be of great cheer. Take courage, Jesus says. I have overcome the world. But so what? What does that have to do with you? And maybe more specifically, what does it have to do with you when your life is not working right? What does Jesus overcoming the world have to do with you when everything is falling apart and your life isn't going the way you want it to go? When we say that Christ is risen from the dead and that he has overcome sin and death, we are not promoting some cute spring holiday where we can all dress up in pretty clothes for one Sunday of the year and eat a bucket of chocolate cream eggs. Now, chocolate cream eggs is fantastic. I'm all about that, right? No, when we say that Jesus is risen from the dead and that he has overcome sin and death, what we are saying is we are promoting Jesus, the Son of God, the very God of very God, and we are promoting that he truly lived and he truly died and he was truly buried in a tomb, and then three days later, he was truly alive. And that he is risen and he is alive right now. 
Christ is risen from the dead, and he has overcome your world. He's overcome your despair. He's overcome your depression. He's overcome the evil and the sin in your world. C.S. Lewis said this, he has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Why is everything different? Why is everything different because of this Easter story? Listen again to what Paul said. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. Everything is different because trusting in the Easter story, trusting in the resurrection of Jesus, means that all of those ifs by Paul are only ifs. It means that our preaching is not in vain. It means that our faith is not in vain. It means that our faith is not worthless. It means we are not still in our sins. That one you need to own. The resurrection of Jesus means that right now I am a sinful husband and I am a sinful father and I'm a sinful pastor and I'm a sinful son. I'm just a sinful dude all the way around. But because of Jesus Christ, I am not in my sin. My sin is not being held over me. That doesn't mean my sin is okay. It just means that when I stand before God, I will hear the words, not guilty. Because Jesus has overcome the world. Because Christ is risen from the dead. It means those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they have not perished. It means that we have not hoped in Christ in this sanctuary only. And it means because Jesus is risen, because he has overcome sin and death, it means we are not to be most pitied by the people of the world. It means that we should have pity and sympathy and empathy on the world because we are victorious. Jesus was raised from the dead and those who are in Christ, they will be raised too. It's not hokey theology. It is a guarantee based on an empty tomb and a risen Savior. So how can we set that down into real life a little bit? How can we set that down into into this week? Today's April 7th, 2019. How, How do we take this theology and put it into our life today? Christina Fox is a wife and mom, counselor and author And she has said by her own admission that she has struggled with depression her whole life. Her whole life. That's weird. Do you all hear that? Is that me? Oh, I was like, heard that. I was like, man, I got an echo. I was like, man, this part's going to be really cool here in just a second. It's going to be great. Christina Fox says this about how she deals with losing heart, how she deals with despair. 
This life is not trouble-free. Jesus did not sugarcoat what it means to follow him. Life will be hard. But our hope lies in what Christ has done. He overcame sin and death. Jesus took on all our sin, shame, and sorrow at the cross. He bore the weight of our guilt and punishment. He suffered the torment of separation from God that was rightfully ours. But because he was sinless, the grave could not hold him. When he rose from the grave, he conquered sin and death. Through faith in his complete work of redemption, we have the hope of eternal life forever in a place where there will be no more sorrow and tears. But then she goes on. There's more. Not only do we have the hope of forever, but we have hope right now. Because of what Jesus accomplished for us, we have been adopted into the family of God. He is our Father. We are co-heirs with Christ. All of God's promises are for us. They're not just for Jesus. They're, They're for us. And she says this, depression may come and visit me again. As Jesus said, we will all have sorrow in this life, but I know in whom I hope. And what does that do? She tells us. When despair weighs heavy on my heart, I need to take heart. See, we we lose heart. This is great. She goes, we need to take heart. I need to take heart and remember that Jesus has overcome the world. So what? She tells us. And because he overcame the world, and conquered sin and death, I know he can resurrect hope in a heart filled with despair. Dear Christian, when things are not going right in life, when your heart is full of despair, may God give us the grace to look in the mirror and say a few words so we can see it with our own eyeballs that that these words exist. And may God in his grace give us the strength to shout to our hearts in the middle of the moments that we are overwhelmed with the needs and the hurts and the pains and the sins and the evils of this world. And what are those few words? that we need to say in the mirror? What are those few words that we need to shout when we're feeling overwhelmed? What are those few words that we need to preach to ourselves? Here's those words. Do not lose heart. Christ is risen from the dead. He has overcome the world. Do not lose heart. Christ is risen from the dead. He has overcome the world.